Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Up until now, all of my podcast episodes have been about the human and cultural history of Algonquin Park, based on both my own writings and those of other friends and colleagues who are also interested in the people side of Algonquin. In this episode, I'm going to shift my focus a bit and concentrate on the most spectacular of Algonquin-defining moments, which is the fall color display. This is taking place as it does every year around this time. I thought that first I'll share some interesting facts about what the fall color process is all about from a scientific perspective, Then I'll talk about some interesting factoids about trees, and lastly touch on what other things are going on in the fall that make Algonquin such a unique and interesting place. However, before I begin, and in the interests of full disclosure and transparency, I do need to let you know that much of the content for this episode comes from Ontario Park's Algonquin Park newsletter, The Raven. For those unaware, The Raven was first published in 1960 on a weekly basis, as part of the Developing Nature Interpretive Programs, which we'll talk about in a later podcast episode. In 1974, Dan Strickland, who was the park naturalist at the time, took over responsibility for its publication and was the main writer of the various articles until 2009. As a side note, selected articles in three volumes are available through the Friends bookstores and are a wonderful addition to anyone's Algonquin Park Books collection. As a young child during our summers at our cottage on Canoe Lake, articles from the Raven commonly served as our bedtime stories, which I guess, now that I think about it, must have been a contributor to my love for Algonquin and the natural world. I sometimes wonder why I never ventured down the naturalist road in my youth. Anyway, the key Raven articles that contribute mightily to this episode include Heavenly Ecology, which was published in September of 1976, Algonquin in Autumn, Behind the Signs, which was published in September 1981, To Sleep the Impossible Sleep, that was published in September 1982, Sex in the Leaves, that was published in September 1988, The Last Color is the Best Color, in September 1992, Is It the Nose that Knows, in August 2001, and Time to Put on the Sunscreen, September of 2004. In addition are several paragraphs from The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wollobin, and some notes here and there from a website called the Harvard Forest. For specific details of all these sources, check out the written description of the episode at www.podbean.com. So here we go. Every late September, for as long as I can remember, Algonquin Park becomes a complete madhouse. Hiking trails are packed, the lines waiting to get a day permit wind out the door and down the entryway at the park gates and the permit offices, Lodges and campgrounds are full to bursting, parking lots at the hiking trailheads are impossible to get into, and the traffic on Highway 60 itself is endless. Why is this, you ask? It's because the annual viewing of the fall colors is upon us, and Algonquin Park at peak viewing time is usually just spectacular. No matter how many years go by, driving across Highway 60 to the visitor center at that time of year is a joyous experience. In my neck of woods, on Canoe Lake, the first sign of fall usually happens in late August. One day, the wind will shift to the north and bring not necessarily bad weather, but a cold, brisk feeling, 
and a winterish smell in the air and much stronger winds. This is usually one of the primary indicators that summer is nearly over and the fall season is just around the corner. Some years in mid-September there's a short return to warm days and sun, but for the most part mornings that time of year require a fire in the fireplace and hot porridge for breakfast. Afternoon gin and tonics seem to no longer be quite as refreshing as they once were, and jumping into the lake for a swim becomes a calling only for the very hardy. The loons in August are madly testing their flying skills with daily practice takeoffs and landings, and groups of single males are seen collecting on the larger lakes. The forest is pretty well silent except for the mad chattering of squirrels harvesting pine cones and cedar seeds. Occasionally, while sitting outside on the deck, I see bands of migrating warblers passing through, and they gather chirping away for a few hours on their way south. Here and there, a red leaf can be seen on nearby maples. On the highway, the last flowers of summer, asters and goldenrods, are still plentiful, but sagging. According to a marvelously expansive report on the Friends of Algonquin Park website, this time of year, www.algonquinpark.on.ca, Official tracking indicates that for decades, the last week of September has generally been the most colorful for the sugar maples and red maples. Since 1972, on average, the date for peak fall colors has been around September 27th, although the range has been as early as September 15th, which it was in 1982, and as late as October 9th, which it was in 1996. Now, as the planet warms, the days of peak blazing red and gold colors seem to be shifting. Since 2014, it's been almost a week later, and in 2016 was October 8th, almost two weeks from the normal average. So the first question that this begs one to ask is why the variability? It seems that trying to forecast the fall color cavalcade is really difficult, because it's subject to so many environmental variables. Day length, moisture, temperature, frost, wind, heavy rain, all of these things play their part. Sometimes the leaves are knocked off the trees early because of high winds, rain, or even snow. Drought, it seems, can also be a factor. If the trees are starved of water and nutrients, they'll stop photosynthesizing early and, as a result, change their colors sooner. If the weather's overcast a lot, fewer sunlight hours can trigger a lesser need for the red pigments, about which we'll talk later. Cooler temperatures, especially if there's an earlier-than-usual frost, can also trigger earlier-than-average color change. Although sometimes warm weather can push back peak fall colors into October, as has happened these last few years. Many of these factors are also influenced, it seems, by elevation. As I've mentioned before, one of the interesting aspects of Algonquin is the fact that it sits at the highest elevation in the area. As noted on the Friends of Algonquin Park website, Quote, this Algonquin Dome underlies the western two-thirds of Algonquin Park. It turns out that Algonquin maples, primarily sugar, red, and striped maples, experience a cooler climate than those outside the park area, as a result of this higher elevation. These cooler conditions and the resulting shorter growing season make for an early fall, and thus an earlier fall color watching season than other locations in southern Ontario. It is this chance to view the canopy of colorful maples that draws visitors from as far away as Japan, as well as Ontario's urban landscapes. But that is not the end of the show, it seems. According to the Friends of Algonquin Park, a visitor 
between early to mid-October, including Canadian Thanksgiving, will observe the yellow-orange colors displayed by poplar and birch species, plus the orange color of the sugar maple understory. This time, known as the golden encore, generally occurs after the sugar maple and red maple peak red color, but offers great landscape views in poplar and birch-dominated areas. The eastern portion of Highway 60 corridor and the park's east side is a great location to view this color. A mid to late October visit showcases tamarack at their peak yellow color before they drop their needles in preparation for winter. The tamarack is Algonquin Park's only cone-bearing tree that drops its, all its needles in preparation for winter. The Friends recommends that whilst out walking, search for tamaracks in wetlands and bogs, including the Spruce Bog Boardwalk, the Mizzy Lake Trail, or along the Opyongo Road. By late October or early November, depending on the environmental conditions, all of Algonquin's 24 deciduous trees are bare and prepared for winter. Now my experience on Canoe Lake has been somewhat different, as by Thanksgiving most if not all of the color is gone, and most of the leaves have fallen. That may be because there's few strands of poplar or tamarack in the area. I don't actually know. Now another question is to wonder why deciduous trees drop their leaves at all? And more importantly, how do these kinds of trees know when to begin to do the work needed to shed their leaves? According to a Raven article called Heavenly Ecology, published in September 1976, one of the contributing factors is the tilt of the Earth. As the Earth moves in its orbit around the Sun, some 93 million miles away, the north axis of rotation of the Earth points to the same place in space, currently the North Star. The Northern Hemisphere experiences its most direct exposure to the Sun's rays at 23.5 degrees above the equator, on or about June 21st, the beginning of Northern Hemisphere summer with its long days and short nights. By September 21st, the Earth has moved in its orbit to where the days and nights are of equal length, bringing on the much cooler temperatures of the fall and later the even colder winter. We can only speculate how the increase of temperature due to climate change will affect the timing of the fall colors in Algonquin Park, but it is a good guess that the peak will occur later than it does now. As a sidebar, it's also interesting to speculate what the impact climate change will have on birds and their migratory patterns. It never ceases to amaze me how Algonquin Park thrushes, warblers, and finches, each with a mass of about 20 grams, can travel thousands of kilometers to their tropical wintering spots. I suspect that with the planet warming in the future, some won't need to fly anywhere near as far south to find a habitat suitable for them. Assuming, of course, that a suitable habitat even exists. Another interesting sidebar, of course, isn't directly related to the leaf color, but to me is fascinating, is to speculate as to how these birds even know when to leave Algonquin and when to return. Research has shown that migrating birds seem to have some means of reading the stars and adjusting their flight direction accordingly. This was proven when observing caged migratory birds. It seems that they, quote, had a strong urge to fly south on a clear, starry night, but no real preference when the sky was overcast. When these same birds were exposed to an artificial sky in a planetarium, they could be fooled into orienting in any direction chosen by the researcher, merely by a change in the orientation of the artificial nighttime sky. 
What is even more interesting is that birds aren't born with any kind of knowledge of these star patterns, but during their first summer in Algonquin somehow learn to associate them with north by observing the constellations, it seems, in their nightly rotation around the North Star, which sits directly above our North Pole and generally indicates north. Anyway, enough on birds. Let's get back to the splendor of the fall leaf color change. Though the color change in leaves is what is visible to us humans, it represents just a single stage of a very complex shutting down and preparing for winter process that sometimes can begin as early as July. As just about everybody learned in science classes in high school, leaves of trees are usually green because of the chemical chlorophyll that is in their leaves. Chlorophyll is critical for tree life because it has the ability to, quote, capture the sun's energy, which it uses to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen is then combined with invisible and odorless carbon dioxide to form sugars, and from them starch and cellulose, and other complex organic chemicals that are needed by the plant. This process then releases oxygen back into the air as a waste product, on which all other life forms, including us, depend on to live. All summer long, the leaves of the trees madly engage in this process and use the energy outputs to grow branches and lay down the cellulose in the tree trunks, but also to store as much as they can in their roots to both feed them during the winter and kick-start a new growth season in the spring. One fascinating book that I came across a few years ago, and I'm sure most of you have heard of, which took the nature world by storm in 2015, is called The Hidden Life of Trees, written by Peter Wolleman. In it, Peter describes his experiences managing a forest of mostly beech and oak trees in the Eiffel Mountains in Germany. In a homespun kind of way, he attempts to articulate what trees feel, how they communicate, and why forests matter. According to Peter, trees follow a similar strategy to black bears. In summer and early fall, trees fuel themselves with energy from the sun. And as mentioned previously, they use it to make sugar and other compounds they can hold in reserve. But unlike bears that can lay down a thick layer of fat on which they can live all winter, trees have a limit to how much they can fill their tissues with food and get full. As Peter wrote, quote, When trees max out their storage places, such as under their bark or in their roots, they have to shut down for the season. Some trees have very large storage areas, and so can continue photosynthesizing and creating sugars until the first heavy frosts. But they have to be mindful of the oncoming winter. If the water in a tree freezes, there's a possibility that like a frozen water pipe, the channels will burst, which is why many trees start reducing the water content in their wood as early as July. It then becomes a race to try to get as many of the nutrients out of the leaves before the frosts of winter. Not only do they have to, quote, fetch the energy reserves that are residing in the leaves and get them back into the trunk and roots, they also have to, quote, break down the chlorophyll into its component parts, including the green pigment, and store it so it can be sent out again to the leaves as the tree leaves out the next spring. As this green pigment departs the leaves, what remains are the yellow and brown colors. There is some research that suggests that the colors that are made of carotene also act as alarm signals to scare away aphids and other insects that like to seek shelter in the cracks in the bark. 
As Peter went on to say, after all of the needed reserves have been reabsorbed back into the trunk of the tree, the tree grows a layer of cells that closes off the connection between the leaf stem and the branch. Any kind of light breeze severs the leaf from the branch, and the leaves fall to the ground. Shedding leaves is an active process, and in the leaves trees can also discard other substances that they no longer need. Once this process is all done, then the tree can relax and rest for the winter months. It turns out that this kind of hibernation and the time to rest is a requirement and is why most kinds of deciduous trees don't make good houseplants. Inside the house, there's no time to rest and the trees become sleep-deprived and most die within a year. One other interesting research fact is that sometimes smaller trees that are well below the main canopy are so excited when the larger trees lose their leaves that they continue to try to tap the sun to create energy. Unfortunately, as the temperatures dip below freezing, they don't have time to grow the separating layer of cells and the leaves are stuck on their branches. Luckily, being so small, windstorms or snow aren't so hard on them so it doesn't become life-threatening that they haven't dropped their leaves. One question that sometimes gets raised is why don't deciduous trees do the same as coniferous trees such as pine, spruce, and hemlock and just keep their leaves all winter? Well, according to Wollobin, and I extensively quote, deciduous trees evolved about 100 million years ago versus conifers that have been around for much longer, over 170 million years. It's believed that they evolved the way they did so as to deal with winter storms more effectively than conifers. Winter storms can pummel a tree trunk with forces of more than 100 kilometers an hour, which is the equivalent weight of nearly 200,000 kilograms. By losing their leaves, the trees become more aerodynamic. It would be like a 40-meter tall sailboat mast dropping a 30-meter by 40-meter mainsail. And the way the trunks and branches are shaped and the amount of resistance they present is somewhat less than that of a modern car. In addition, when the wind hits, the trunk and branches are somewhat flexible and the force can be absorbed and distributed throughout the tree. Wollobin's other interesting idea, though indirectly related, is that tree ecosystems, quote, stand together to help each other during bad storms. When initially struck by fierce winds, all the trees in the community bend in the same direction but bounce back at different speeds. In so doing, because each trunk is different and has its own pattern of woody fibers, quote, when the crowns of the tree swing back up to a vertical position, they hit each other. Some are still moving forward with the next gust of wind, while others are moving backwards. This gentle impact slows both of the trees down. The community of trees, in effect, help each other. The net result is that even though it takes a lot of energy to regrow the leaves each spring, in the end, more of the community survives each winter. The other interesting thing is that with the leaves gone, there is no place for the snow to land but on the branches, as the massive leaf surface has disappeared once the leaves fall. Quote, most of the snow falls to the ground. The tricky part is that if instead of snow, there's freezing rain, Though the sparkly ice crystals look beautiful, the branches quickly become weighted down. For conifers and pine trees, this can be a disaster. But leafless trees, more often than not, can spring back.
The other process that happens in leaves in the fall is the need to also salvage as much as possible of minute quantities of additional minerals and nutrients such as magnesium, an essential component of chlorophyll, nitrogen, a part of all proteins, and others such as calcium, phosphorus, and potassium. These were originally obtained from the soil through the roots of the tree. If the leaves froze in place and these minerals and nutrients were not reabsorbed into the tree trunk and stored in their woody tissues for the winter, quoting from Wallabin, quote, it would be an impossible situation the next spring when the tree went to manufacture a whole new set of leaves. The tree could never absorb enough replacement nutrients through its half-frozen roots to do the job in time. Interesting, don't you think? This is why, quoting from a 1981 article in The Raven, Algonquin in Autumn, behind the signs, quote, trees hedge their bets by starting to remove nitrogen and other nutrients from the leaves almost as soon as the long prime growing season in June and early July are over. Eventually, the leaves finally can't manufacture chlorophyll anymore, usually sometimes in September. Then, as the leaves start to change color, we humans, of course, begin to notice that something different is going on. As the article went on to say, By this time, half of the leaves' nutrients have already been removed for safekeeping, and the question then is how many of those still in the leaves can be salvaged before the leaf is finally killed. An early frost, for example, could inactivate the enzymes that remove the nutrients or clog the transportation routes with ice crystals. Either way, the remaining nutrients would be trapped inside the leaf and therefore be lost to the tree. What is also interesting is to speculate as to why some leaves on trees such as oak trees turn brown, while others such as birch and aspen, the loss of green chlorophyll unmasks yellow pigments that were there all the time. And even others such as red and sugar maples turn brilliant red, as we know. Quoting liberally from the Harvard Forest, plants use chlorophyll and carotenoids, both chemical pigments, to absorb light. Light has color components collectively known as the spectrum. The spectrum consists of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet colors. The green light portion of the spectrum is not effectively absorbed by chlorophyll in plants. The green light is either reflected by or passed through the leaf. This is why leaves generally appear green. Carotenoids represent a collection of two groups of pigments, carotenes and xanthophylls. Carotenes are similar to vitamin A and are responsible for the coloration of carrots, pumpkins, and yellow and orange leaves. The name carrot is derived from this pigment. Xanophils are yellow pigments responsible for the coloration found in dandelions, sunflowers, corn, egg yolks, and yellow leaves. In addition to carotenes and xanthophils, three other chemical pigments play a role in foliage coloration. A red color happens when leaves produce red pigments called anthocyanins from excess sugars in late fall. Anthocyanins produce blue, red, and violet colors. If the plant cell fluid is acidic, the coloration will be red. Conversely, if the fluid is basic, then the color will be blue. Tannins produce brown colors, often seen in tea, chestnut bark, and in oak leaves in the fall. The final pigment is a group known as flavones. They are also yellow and are found in sumac, horse chestnut, tea, and onions.
Quoting from the 2004 article in The Raven, Time to Put on the Sunscreen, anthocyanins form only at the very end of the life of the leaves, just as the chlorophyll is breaking down. Sunny days and cold nights are what trigger anthocyanins production. Tree species with brilliant red foliage are much more typical of Canada and the northern United States, with that region's crisp and sunny autumns, than they are in Europe that is typically warmer and cloudier in the fall. Best and brightest colors are clearly associated with more northern or higher elevation forests, as we see in Algonquin Park. Another really interesting thing that I didn't know is that if the fall leaves of red or sugar maples are looked at under a microscope, the red pigments are contained in the surface cells of the leaves or just underneath, but never deep inside the leaves or closely associated with their internal biochemical machinery. With sugar maples, it's not every leaf that turns red in the first place. The great majority of sugar maple leaves actually turn yellow in the fall. The only leaves that turn red are on the crown or on the south-facing sides of trees that happen to be growing on the north sides of natural or artificial clearings like Highway 60. Taken together, these observations strongly suggest that the red pigments could be playing a role in protecting the leaves from bright sunlight, at least when the temperatures are cold. According to the Harvard Forest website, anthocyanins may be physiologically important in aging leaves in two ways. First, they are very strong antioxidants. There is growing evidence for the nutritional importance of anthocyanins in diet in slowing the onset of some symptoms of aging. Secondly, Anthocyanins act as a sunscreen, protecting the chloroplasts that are vulnerable as they take the chlorophyll molecule apart under autumn conditions of cold temperatures and bright sunlight. The payoff for the plant is that this protection could increase the efficiency of reabsorbing the nitrogen that is released from the breakdown of chlorophyll and the enzymes of photosynthesis, taking it from the leaves and putting it back into the branches and the trunk to be used the next spring. Evidence shows that the redder leaves have less nitrogen when they fall from the trees compared to leaves without anthocyanin. I thought it would be useful to delve a little more into the details of Algonquin Park's red and sugar maples, so for the next section I'll be quoting liberally from a September 88 article in The Raven entitled Sex in the Leaves. So it turns out that being able to differentiate a red maple and a sugar maple is, according to biologists and foresters, akin to not being able to differentiate between a moose and a deer. Now who would have thought that? On that note, I think it's time for a musical break. And I'm pleased to have again the Waccamee Whalers with their song, Land of the Silver Birch, one of my favorites from childhood, and it comes from their Walls with the Woods album, which they did in 1993. Land of the silver birch, home of the beaver, where still the mighty moose wanders at will. Blue lake and rocky shore, I will return once more. Oh, 
High on a rocky ledge I'll build my wigwam Close by the water shore Silent and free Blue lake and rocky shore I will return once more Oh, I, 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 oh, I, I, oh, I, I, oh, I, 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 My heart grows sick for thee here in this low land. I will return to the hills of the north. Blue lake and rocky shore, I will return once more. Oh, I, 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 Land of the silver birch, home of the beaver, where still the mighty moose wanders at will. Blue lake and rocky shore, I will return once more. Oh, I, 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 oh, I, 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 that red-colored red maples and orange-colored sugar maples are not just minor variations on the same theme, but are completely different organisms. Not only are there anatomical differences, leaf shapes, sugar maples have far more pronounced pointed edges, but the two trees have completely different lifestyles. Now, who ever heard of a tree having a lifestyle? However, it seems that trees like birches and poplars that normally grow in full sunlight seem not to need any extra protection in the fall, even when it's cold and their chlorophyll is breaking down. Sugar maples are the dominant tree on the moist, well-drained hills of the park's west side. They are also bisexual in the sense that the flowers produced at leaf-out time, back in May, contain both male and female parts, and each tree can both fertilize and be fertilized and produce seeds which ripen slowly over the summer. Red maples, on the other hand, usually grow in places that sugar maples can't inhabit, dry rocky hillsides or wet mucky soil beside bogs and beaver ponds. They usually grow up in dense shade and their leaf biochemistry is adapted to those very different conditions. Maple leaves that happen to be exposed to direct sunlight at the very top or crown of the tree are able to get along in summer. But as soon as their chlorophyll starts to break down in the fall, their chemical machinery becomes fatally sensitive to the combination of bright sunlight and cold temperatures. It therefore makes sense that maples, at least in their most exposed leaves, should develop some features that gives them some protection against bright sun and cold. 
Another interesting factoid is the notion that red maples can achieve the tall size and proportions of a sugar maple, but especially on the poorer sites, they tend to be small and sprawling, often with multiple trunks. Quoting liberally from Strickland's 1988 article, red maples and sugar maples have different flowering strategies. To begin with, red maples produce their deep red, quite beautiful flowers soon after the snow disappears and well before leaf out. Even more different from the sugar maple, those flowers are almost always strictly male or strictly female. Each individual tree furthermore usually has flowers of only one sex, meaning that there are female red maple trees and male red maple trees, the males being perhaps seven times more numerous. The flowering of both maples is over so early in the year that very few people have the chance to appreciate the utterly different sex lives of the two maples. The differences show up again, however, and this is what we were alluding to when we said earlier that the brilliant fall colors hint at one of the most fascinating aspects of tree biology. Sugar maple leaves can turn almost any shade of yellow, orange, or red, but the color seems to depend on the particular place on the tree occupied by the leaf. Shaded leaves ending up yellow and leaves exposed to the sun, even on the same tree, tend to turn more orange or red. With red maple leaves, however, the fall colors depend upon the sex of the tree. It is the male red maple leaves that produce the brilliant scarlet or red leaves, whereas the much less numerous female trees turn to a very different, distinctly yellow or at the most orangish color. Park biologists only learned of this spectacular sex difference in the mid-1980s when a distinguished forester pointed it out. Since then, they've taken a great interest in picking out, often from great distance, the male and female red maples during the fall color season. No one really knows why red maples almost always have separate seed trees, whereas the sugar maple never does. There is even the possibility hinted at by the little research conducted on the subject that individual trees may actually start their reproductive lives off as males and then gradually change over time to being partly and then entirely females. One suggestion based on patterns seen in striped maples, which are also common in Algonquin, is the idea that for a small tree struggling to make a living in dense shade, it is more economical at first to be purely male. All males have to do is produce pollen, as opposed to being obliged to produce big, energy-rich seeds in the way females do. Only when big or about to be shaded out and killed anyway, does a striped maple throw energy into the costly, even life-threatening business of producing seeds. But in the end, why would a maple tree go to all the trouble and expense of producing those pigments for the sake of just a few extra weeks at the very end of the annual growing season. Well, the truth is that the last days before leaf fall are very important, at least to a tree. The leaves that are about to fall contain small but extremely important amounts of precious nutrients, such as nitrogen, phosphorus, and manganese, that are essential for the tree's chemistry and good health. The tree has worked very hard to glean those nutrients from the soil and transport them from its roots to its leaves. Now it must do everything it can to salvage as many of them as possible before the leaves are cut loose. It takes them several weeks and lots of energy 
for the nutrients to be pumped out of the leaves and back into the tree. Unfortunately, at any one time, a leaf has only about three or four days' worth of energy on hand. And for the salvage operation to be completed, the leaves' chlorophyll-based system of capturing new energy from sunlight must be preserved intact for as long as possible. That is why, Strickland says, it's really worthwhile for a sensitive tree like a maple to do whatever it can to protect the chemical machinery in its exposed leaves so as to keep bringing in as many leaf nutrients for as long as possible. Still, there is no scientific proof that the red anthocyanins in maples actually do protect the dying leaves from the dangerous combination of bright sunlight and cold temperatures. Still, the circumstantial evidence seems to be very powerful. First is the world distribution of red foliage species that are more numerous in northern climes. Second is the sensitivity of the affected tree species and the fact that red pigments develop in response to bright sunlight and cold temperatures. Third is the confinement to red pigments on the surface of the leaves and to the leaves most exposed to the sun. As a result, all of these facts suggest that, it, that the red is almost certainly playing a vital role protecting the inner machinery of the life-giving leaves. Though I realize that much of the focus of this episode has been on tree leaves and why they change color, one of the other things that Wallabin talks a lot about in his book, The Hidden Life of Trees, that I found absolutely fascinating and indirectly related is the idea of forest etiquette. Now, I don't know about you, but other than pine trees, for all of the years that I've spent in Algonquin Park, clearly and deeply looking at the shape of trees has not been on my to-do list. However, after reading Peter's chapter, I had a whole new set of eyes with which to view the Algonquin Forest. And I thought I'd share that with you. For example, I had no idea that a mature, well-behaved, deciduous tree is supposed to have a, quote, ramrod straight trunk with an orderly arrangement of wood fibers. The roots are supposed to stretch evenly in all directions and reach down into the earth under the tree. At the top, deciduous trees are supposed to have a symmetrical crown with, quote, branches angling upward like arms raised to the heaven. Whereas for conifers, the topmost branches are, quote, almost horizontal or slightly bent downwards, so that the snow runs off them. This ideal shape happens because mature trees are constantly buffeted by turbulent winds, torrential rains, and heavy snow loads, which, if not properly cushioned, put tremendous stress on the trunk. With the right shape, the tree can, quote, direct and divide these forces evenly throughout their structure. Trees that are curved or forked have seriously difficult time dealing with all of these stresses. Wallabin suggests that trees learn how to deal with these stresses, like those that occur when a mature mother tree dies and big gaps appear in the forest canopy. If so, then the deeper question becomes, where do they store what they've learned and how do they access that information when they need it? Research in Australia by Dr. Monica Gagliano suggests that plants actually have memories, and if so, why not trees as well? Trees also apparently seem to have this amazing symbiotic relationship with certain kinds of fungi that grow into the soft root hairs of the tree roots. These fungi not just penetrate and envelop the tree roots, but also extend their webs of mycelium throughout the surrounding forest floor, 
and eventually connect to other trees, and not necessarily ones of the same species. The resulting, quote, network, unquote, not only enables a broader exchange of nutrients, but also information, like an impending insect attack. Apparently, fungi can, quote, demand up to one-third of the tree's total food production in return for their services. What kind of services, do you ask? Well, apparently, the fungi can filter out heavy metals, can ward off attacks by bacterial and other non-friendly fungi, and even, in some cases, release toxins into the soil. Another interesting question that I've always wondered about is how does the water get from the ground up to the leaves at the top of the tree? Most of us learned in science class in elementary school that tree leaves and needles constantly breathe out water vapor, especially when it's warm. This suction action draws water up the tree trunk's narrow transportation pathways via capillary action and osmosis. As you'll recall, the osmosis process is where water flows from one cell to another to equalize if one cell has a high concentration of sugar. The funny thing is that water pressure, which believe it or not can be measured in a tree, is highest just before the leaves open in the spring and can actually be heard with a tree stethoscope. Now there's a new thing to be added to my bucket list. Water and nutrients that flow up the tree trunk to create the new leaves do so at a rate of a third of an inch per second. Sugar maples, as we all know, produce sap that is sweet, which when boiled down becomes what we know as maple syrup. By the way, the smaller trees also leaf out earlier in the spring, which makes one wonder how do they know when to do so. They know because it's usually warmer closer to the ground than up in the canopy and the canopy branches keep heavy late frost from hitting the ground, and the ground cover heats up, acting like a warm composting pile. Nevertheless, how do mature trees know when to start producing leaves? Logically, it makes sense that as things warm up and the frozen water in the tree trunk starts to thaw and flow once again, that this might be a good trigger. Well, research has shown that trees seem to have some sense of time and hold off growing until there is a certain number of hours of sunlight each day. Some speculate that it is the tree buds that have some capability to act like a solar cell, receive light waves, and measure day length. They also must know how to measure temperatures going up that tells them it's spring and going down that tells them that winter is coming. The trees know this is illustrated by what happens to a northern hemisphere tree when it is exported to the southern hemisphere. When planted there, they are able to reverse this cycle quite easily. This also suggests that trees have a memory. They also need this sense of time so as to know when to drop their seeds, and those seeds that drop in the fall need to know not to sprout right away but to wait till spring. Now, one would assume that a group of trees all living close together in the same ecosystem of soil, water, and local microclimate would all behave exactly the same way. But as Peter has noted, this turns out not to be the case. One set of three trees that he observed in a field near his home seemed to decide differently when to begin leafing out and when to drop their leaves. 
One, he suggests, is more anxious and more cautious and sheds its leaves earlier than the other two. The other bolder ones stay green a little longer but take a bigger risk that fall storms won't catch them full of leaves. Another interesting event that happens in the fall as the leaves are changing is an annual bear migration. As reported in the Raven in 2001, is it the nose that knows? Every year in late August, many of Algonquin's bears suddenly pick up and leave the territories where they spent the previous winter in hibernation and also the spring and early summer. This phenomenon was first discovered with radio-collared bears in northern Minnesota in the 1980s. 69% of males and 40% of females left their territories and spent at least a week seven kilometers or farther away from home. The straight-line distance averaged is about 30 kilometers, with one traveling over 200 kilometers and stayed away for 13 weeks. Most of the trips were done very quickly, with the bears covering 20 to 25 kilometers a day, sometimes for several days in a row. Even females with small cubs were just as likely to make these sudden out-of-territory movements. A few years later, the same behavior was confirmed in Algonquin in a study of radio-collared male bears carried out from 1992 to 1997. Straight-line distance took most of them right out of the park, and they stayed away two weeks. Soon after they returned, they went straight into their hibernation dens. These expeditions seemed to occur soon after the end of June to early July breeding seasons, and they seemed to be motivated by lack of food. Slightly less than half went straight to oak or beech groves that were producing good crops of nutritious acorns or beech nuts. Some, unfortunately, also went to municipal garbage dumps. Further investigation showed that these late summer forays did help the bears fatten up. One that was tracked gained 18 kilograms in a little over two weeks. Their return trips were also just as fast as the trips going out. In a rapid, straight-line movement, some knew exactly where they were going on the outbound routes, whereas others did not and had to do a lot of reconnoitering to find worthwhile patches of food. But how do these bears perform these remarkable feats of navigation? Some think it's their great sense of smell. Others think that these bears may have just incredibly good senses of direction and distance, or could be memorizing or drawing highly accurate maps in their brains as they go. Still others think that they use polarized light or gradients in the Earth's magnetic field to get their bearings. But nobody really knows. Another faulty assumption that I found that needed to be corrected is that all bears spend their winters in nice warm caves. According to a 1982 Raven article to Sleep the Impossible Sleep, many bears simply crawl under a brush pile, a fallen tree trunk, or an overhanging rock that provides no insulative value at all for settling down for the winter. They begin by preparing a so-called bed by raking in leaves and club mosses or by piling up coniferous branches that they bite from living trees or bark stripped from cedars. This construction provides, I suppose, a small windbreak. And I guess eventually snow drifts over the bear den. More often, however, the sleeping animal remains exposed to the often 
bitterly cold air outside. It also turns out that bears aren't really true hibernators like turtles or frogs. Though they do lower their body temperature a few degrees and their heart rate drops to as low as 8 beats a minute, they still can wake up in just a few minutes. They also continue to burn up energy at fully half the summer rate, which is illogical and disregards the laws of physics. Bears don't pee at all during the winter, and yet somehow are able to break down their waste products and recycle the nitrogen to repair body proteins. They also have very high cholesterol levels, but no known problems with hardening of the arteries or gallstones, apparently because they produce a special bile juice. The fact that they can survive at all over the winter is pretty amazing, but in addition, every second year, female bears give birth to two or three cubs in January and resume their deep sleep. The cubs are very small at birth, usually less than a pound, and they're hairless, but they survive by snuggling up against the sparsely furred underside of their mother. In the three months leading up to their emergence from the den, their weights will increase to the two to three kilogram range thanks to the rich milk provided by their mother, who you will remember is almost always asleep and who hasn't eaten or drunken anything since the previous October. Experts suggest that bears are more efficient hibernators than most other animals simply because they're so large, with superb insulating winter pelts, especially on their back and sides. They also sleep upright, which I had no idea. They curl up in a ball with the top of their heads on the ground tucked in between their forepaws, which apparently is an energy-conserving sleeping position. All of this seems to fly in the face of our conventional ideas about survival and energy conservation. One myth has it that bears get additional sustenance by deliberately walking on berries all summer long so they can lick up the juice during the winter. Now bears do lick their feet during hibernation, but that's because they slough off their own foot and toe pads every year while in the winter den, and the new ones are quite tender. It is a puzzle indeed. As mentioned in the beginning, the fall colors are definitely an Algonquin-defining moment, and well worth the trek to view them. However, it should be mentioned that to view the fall colors anywhere in the park these days, you do need to purchase a $21 day pass, up to five days before your visit through the Ontario Parks Reservation online. You can register by phone also at 1-888-668-7275. I hope you've enjoyed my stories about leaves and trees and bears. But there is one more thing we must not forget. Tom Thompson was the one who probably more than anyone else was the first to introduce us all to the glory of the fall colors. His ability to capture the landscape and express it in a way that so many of us could relate to is, I think, remarkable. So as a tribute, I'd like to share one more time Ian Tamlin's song, Brush and Paddle, and encourage all of you to look again at Thompson's images of Algonquin Park in the fall and declare in whatever way you'd like a toast to his brilliance.
washing battle through the lingering mist of a northern lake. There, that's my canvas, my canoe. Can you see me clearly now? Russian paddles, stroke by stroke, the northern rivers of your public schools. I was seen on every wall. Can you see me clearly now? I'll come to you alive as all the colors you'll imagine on a canvas. The promised greens of springtime, the threatening grays of fall. Cobalt crimson, the sky is now electric and the light is moving fast. Russian paddles, stroke by stroke, as west winds move the future of white pines. I cannot know the future, I only know this moment and how it is defined. But I'll come to you. Alive is all the colors you'll imagine on a canvas. The promised greens of springtime, the threatening grays of fall. Algonquin, it seems so little time to be alone. Russian paddle, stroke by stroke, through the mist, Bill Mason, why even Pierre to don't? I am your invention, I am your great need And Thompson, Thompson is my name I come to you by brush and battle Through the lingering mist of a northern lake There, that's my canvas, my canoe Can you see me clearly now? On that note, I look forward to chatting with you again on our next Algonquin Defining Moments. Mm -hmm.